This is the Global Bears podcast. Hi, I'm Tiffany. Hi, I'm Chris. And I'm Andrew. Today we'll be talking about the growth of isolationist sentiments across the political spectrum in the United States and the world more broadly. For this discussion, we're defining isolationism as an exploration of sentiments toward interactions with the rest of the world, as opposed to just economic or military isolationism. This is especially relevant when you're discussing isolationism on the European continent. Because Europe is usually not unilaterally leading military endeavors uh, around the rest of the world, they're usually following with their uh, Western allies in the United States or through NATO coalition actions. It's not super common for European governments to have very fixed positions on uh, troop movements or any of those kind of things in other countries. It's very rare you see that be relevant to European politics. What you do see, though, is a lot of ideas around the coalitions themselves. That's NATO, that's the European Union, um, all those kind of things. Uh, Especially in the past few years, we've seen a lot of um, negative energy toward the European Union, like we saw Brexit somewhat recently, which um, was about immigration and refugee uh, situation in the European Union, but it was also about Britain's role in trade opportunities and global trade more broadly. Um, So Brexit, though it was driven in part by this anti-immigrant sentiment, um, the Britons who voted for it often still support globalization in the context of trade. Like when Brexit was passed and discussed and all these things, Boris Johnson's government was referring to it as the launch of a global Britain, talking about Britain's increased role in the world, not hiding away and focusing on domestic industry. They thought that through Brexit, they'd be able to deal more effectively with the rest of the world than they would as part of the European Union. I think one thing that's worth mentioning is that, um, at least for the case of Brexit, a lot of um, British people, they view the EU as setting up a lot of barriers to trade, not only within the European Union, but particularly like with for um, with nations outside of the European Union, like the United States. And so like a lot of people, they voted for Brexit because they're under the conception that when Britain is not no longer a part of the European Union, they'll be able to have a lot more free trade opportunities with nations like America. And that would um, basically be more beneficial to the economy, even though they um, would lose some trade with members of EU. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. With the Schengen trade agreement comes a lot of trade-offs when you're talking about international trade more broadly. And because the UK specifically does so much of its commerce with the United States, that certainly was an important consideration for many when that referendum came to be. Um, You also see kind of like attitudes in the UK and other parts of Europe about being kind of like um, ruled over by the European Union, especially you see this in like Eastern European countries that were kind of more recently involved in the European community or the European Union, um, like they where they feel almost colonized by Brussels and by the EU. Uh, Like in Hungary, we see this kind of growth of right wing populism that is very Eurosceptical. You see uh, Viktor Orban talking about Uh, not wanting to accede to the demands of the Belgians or the EU. He talked about um, specifically in like the energy realm, dealing with Russia versus dealing with Europe. And that's a decision that a lot of European countries today are having to face, like Germany and other places in Europe. Like with Hungary, they were working on a pipeline, the South Stream Balkan pipeline that would have transported natural gas into the region. And this was kind of like talked down upon by the European Union, which, at least in Orban's eyes, didn't have a problem with the Nord Stream, which he sees as an equivalent project that 
went through maybe more wealthy, more connected to Belgium uh, countries in Europe. And I think uh, um, for a lot of these European nations, the problem is not just purely trade and purely economic, but also um, it's a topic of sovereignty. Because most of them have their own parliament, have their own um, legislative branch. But with EU, they often don't have the freedom to like set up their own rules about like their economic conditions, about their currency. It is a sensitive topic for a lot of um, legislatures within Europe because it's like on one hand, they still have the power to make decisions about a lot of their um, native countries' issues. But on the other hand, they still have to follow the rules of EU. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of truth to that. And we especially see that with kind of European um, endeavors toward correcting, quote-unquote, the monetary and fiscal policy of countries, especially during the European debt crisis, like we saw with Greece and Spain and other nations affected by that, where the European Union was pushing on them policies of austerity and like neoliberal kind of economic ideas. And you also see like we have like the transatlantic trade and investment partnership that was looked at throughout all the uh, 2010s, but kind of shelved in 2019. Like these kind of unilateral agreements by the European Union that don't always necessarily take um, all the considerations of the member states, though that would have probably helped the UK as far as trade with the US, but for other parts in Europe, that still have more protectionist ideas when it comes to that kind of international trade, it would have had some serious implications. I mean, it would have liberalized trade for a third of the world economy, so that definitely comes with a lot of pushback from domestic industries and the representatives therein. And I think a lot of people that um, like supported more isolationist, um, maybe separating from EU, like Brexit, a lot of them don't really realize that the impact of EU is not only on trade, but it's also on like human resources and like traveling. Like we see news right now about um, Britons being unsatisfied about how they have to wait like hours in order to visit Europe when in the past they don't have to, they can just go. And I even remember that back when uh, Brexit just happened, there were um, discussions about like pet passports because a lot of Britons, they bring their pets to with them when they're traveling or when they need to see like a vet that was in the Europe in well mainland Europe. And there were just like so many treaties that were formed under the EU that they had to figure out again after Brexit. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Schengen Agreement, uh, border zones and everything were a very big loss for a lot of people in the UK. I mean, you also see with kind of that tension with Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland uh, in regards to that. But also, like, I mean, in Eastern Europe, once again, kind of like the Balkan nations, you see Um, It's more than just tourism, it's also economic opportunities because a lot of Eastern European workers wouldn't need any kind of like work visa or anything. They'd go to Germany or these other prosperous countries and find work there that was higher pay than what they could get in like Bosnia, Montenegro, those kind of places. It's interesting to me that a lot of these uh, poor Eastern European countries have kind of Eurosceptical attitudes when they're benefiting a lot from those kind of Schengen agreement policies that allow them to work in foreign places. I feel like the isolationist sentiment is not just in Europe, but it's absolutely a huge part of the political sphere in the United States. And in the United States particularly, there is a historical trend of isolationism when dealing with international affairs. 
Um, for example, we basically practice non-interventionism from the late 18th century to the first half of 20th century, and we almost never um, willingly be involved in like European affairs that um, might drag us into wars. And we avoided forming alliances with other nations to prevent participation in wars when um, U.S. territories are not directly related to. It really had a strong historical legacy that just came from the founding fathers. For example, um, Washington's farewell address talked about how um, the great rule of conduct for us in regard to foreign nations is in extending our commercial relations to have with them as little political connection as possible, or in Jefferson's words, commerce with all nations and alliance with none. And even during the 20th century, when Woodrow Wilson won the 1916 election party, it was at least partly with the slogan, he kept us out of war, although it didn't end up actually keeping us out of World War I. Um, but it did keep us out from joining the League of Nations, and that is partly, or one of the main reasons why the League of Nations failed in the end. And between the two world wars, the United States did participate in international treaties and negotiations, but the Great Depression largely shifted the nation's focus onto domestic problems. Um, however, it is worth noting that there are a couple of violations during this time period, for example, the Spanish-American War, and later on in the Cold War to present day, the America, um, America became much more involved in affairs around the world. We have Korean War, we have Vietnam War, which did drew a large criticism from the society as the war dragged on and countless men were lost to the war. And we formed the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, um, or NATO. The last couple of decades, a lot of American war efforts were placed on the Middle East, which was um, said by a lot of people to just be a place of endless wars and conflict. Um, but in recent years, there was a um, going back to more or less intervention in the area when President Trump and later President Biden both withdrew troops from Somalia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And it is a generally popular decision, even though the Afghanistan government quickly fell into the hands of Taliban, but most Americans still felt like there has to be an end to the countless warfares in the Middle East, at least for American involvement. And I think like one of the main big um, discussion revolving America's um, place in the world is just that a lot of people call us the world police, but is it a good or bad identity to take? What do you guys think about it? I mean, I think our, our place um, in the international scene has changed pretty dramatically post-World War II, where we've had more of that power and mobilization to manifest as the world police or as a kind of global hegemon, especially post-Cold War, where there's not really anyone to really compete against us in that lane, except now the rise of China. Um, but I think that we often put too much into the idea of um, America as this force for global good, 
um, which one of the branches of the military uses that as a slogan or something along <laughs> those lines, um, which I think when we look at the war in Iraq, the um, other Middle Eastern wars, the war in, uh, our interventions in Libya, um, it's not always necessarily in the best interests of the people there. And I think that would be um, agreed upon by a lot of uh, those within those countries. Um, so it's really a matter of are we doing more harm than good and who are we benefiting when we go to war in these places. I think another perspective to take into account would be the rise of China in the international scene, especially with them investing more and more throughout the years in infrastructure in other countries, especially in countries that can't necessarily afford to pay off the debt that they're getting from China. So in that case, it'd be more like they're receiving more harm by the U.S. and not intervening and being more dependent on China. Because I feel like regardless, a lot of these countries that are still trying to expand and grow and are still third world countries do need investment. But where are they going to turn to get that investment if it's not the United States? Well, that's why it's important we have these kind of like global institutions like the IMF and the World Bank that are meant more to like facilitate those kind of things. But when you look at the interest rates being provided through BRI initiatives versus through the IMF, it is hard to not see those kind of global institutions as almost predatory, um, even more so than it could be argued um, PRC's policies in those places are, um, though both definitely have a pattern of entrapping people in debt. I think um, going back to what um, Andrew talked about, like who are we benefiting, um, I think one of the things that we can be certain is that America a lot of times do benefit from these interventions. Not necessarily in a good way, but you know, like we have the military industrial complex, maybe we're securing oil, um, securing our energy in the Middle East. But at the same time, even though we even though America could be financially benefiting from these conflicts, maybe like on at least in some of the circumstances, we are also defending our allies against totalitarian dictatorships or even ethnic violences. And going back to um, what Chris was saying about China's expansion, can you tell us a little bit more about it? China's like key international relations things going on right now is the Belt and Road Initiative which is this initiative that's trying to mirror the Silk Road. And it basically has two major parts. Um, the Belt, which is a land uh, infrastructure investments in countries in between Europe and to move products into Europe. And apart from this, the Road Initiative is actually, despite being called Road, is a marine in aspect that would allow them to move trade around and trade with the world and compete with the United States on the international level and included in the investments also things like energy and other things to support uh, the infrastructure that they're building and to do this infrastructure they're offering loans to a lot of different countries especially some of them that can't afford the debt that they're receiving and i think um, particularly during the time of covid a lot of those nations they might have been able to um, successfully pay back the debt to china but a lot of them couldn't because of the economic burdens that are brought by uh, covid i think one of the um most notable example is sri lanka who are unable to manage their debt and had to basically like give some of the assets to China in, um, in return. Yeah, I'd agree. I think another prominent example would be Djibouti, 
who has received a lot of money from China to help build infrastructure. But as of recently, it's been reported that the debt has overpassed 70% of their GDP. And this just goes to show how China is being very predatorial. They're giving loans to countries that are still developing and not really capable of paying back this debt. And China knows this because a lot of these countries don't have good debt ratings or no debt ratings at all, or credit ratings, my apologies. Um, so I guess that leaves the United States to either intervene or allow this to continue on, in which it may unfold in a worse manner. Honestly, I don't know if it is the it would be the right decision for America to intervene in this because it might be more um, the responsibility of like IMF instead of just America. Because, you know, after all, both of these nations willingly enter the contract and the nations like in Southeast Asia and Africa, they willingly took on those debt. I'm not saying that they should just be ridden by debt. The issue is between those countries and outside of like the IMF and World Bank. I don't know if America should step into this. Yeah, I think Tiffany, you brought up a good point earlier talking about COVID making it a lot harder unexpectedly for these countries to pay back their debt, which is definitely having problem, um, causing problems for places like Sri Lanka. Because yeah, like, the way that China handles the late payments and defaulting on these kind of debts is like reappropriation of assets or things like that. I mean, sometimes they have forgiven the debts or given them extensions and stuff like that. But um, it's kind of weighing that versus um, the IMF and World Bank kind of things where they're enforcing austerity or they're kind of taking control of fiscal policy in the countries they give loans to, or they're changing the way that the governments work in countries they give loans to. It's kind of an encroachment on their sovereignty. Um, so it's just kind of weighing for each individual country, like what is their best case scenario? And I think that's a lot of it is just up to the governments of those countries to rationally weigh those options and see what's on the table. And I think in many ways, it is a good thing that we have more of a competition, more of a marketplace where they can say, we don't want to just rely on the primarily U.S. Europe-backed IMF World Bank, uh, and we have another option in China, even though both are not often the most, um, the best options. And I think uh, one important point for us to remember is that the um, the investment brought by China, even though like from one angle we look at it, it's very predatory and it's basically crippling those nations with debt. But those investments are also going directly into a lot of key infrastructures that will benefit um, those nations in the decades, even like a hundred years in the future. And the economic benefit that were brought by um, those projects like building ports and airports and better highways, well, it's up to the nations to decide if they are if those projects are worth it um, in comparison to the debt that they had attained from China. I'd agree, but I think like a little like a more macro thing that people fail to consider is a lot of these like smaller governments are a lot more corrupt. Um, so they'll be more likely to take these this money from China. Like I was listening to another podcast and the way they put it is that like the United States and other like developed nations like the National Bank that you guys were talking about, when they go out to give loans to countries, they'll like go, they'll look at the government and they'll be like, okay, you guys need to do this and this to prepare yourselves and then we'll give you guys the loan. Or in turn, China it's like, oh, who wants money? Um, okay, here's the money to do this. And so there's not as much security in place. So I guess not, it's not necessarily the U.S.'s responsibility, but it's somebody's responsibility. And I think the U.S. It as has a global economy to make significant change 
to have more of an enforcement mechanism than other organizations. But I think it's also an important consideration. Like these are kind of paternalistic attitudes that uh, these countries have to adopt certain monetary policy changes in order to be worthy of accepting loans. Um, and it's kind of unclear in many cases whether enforcing these new liberal policies is even beneficial for the countries. Because usually, um, I mean, there's a big trend of IMF loans being just the, the backing on them, the infrastructure projects and everything in exchange for new liberal policies that benefit American companies or other multinational companies that then go into those countries, it's not necessarily benefiting the host government. So I think that often those kind of preparations for taking the loans and those kind of um, expectations put on by the IMF and World Bank are predatory in the same way that uh, China's loan situation is predatory. It's just a matter of... I do agree, though, with what you were saying as far as like it can be seen as irresponsible when they're just kind of giving them out more to benefit China's wanting to expand trade infrastructure than what's actually for the benefit of the nation. But oftentimes, it works to the benefit of everyone involved. I wouldn't necessarily say that the IMF is um, completely pushing those nations to adopt like neoliberal um, principles, because a lot of the times what IMF is mostly looking for is just like basically better structuring within those governments that are getting dead. For example, less corruption, better, um, I wouldn't really call it like balance of power, but maybe like better ability for um, other people to know like where the money are going. So um, they can limit um, inefficiency. And these are not necessarily, well, they're not bad things for the governments. Yeah, I think that is a good point, for sure. I do think that, yeah, that kind of goes, what Chris was talking about as well, kind of that responsibility that the global community puts when it invests money in these places. There is definitely something to making sure that where the money flows, we can at least keep track of, you know. I think one of the things that we need to consider when we're looking at China's Belt and Road Initiative is that it's not purely an economic project, but it's also uh, certainly a political one where they're trying to expand their influence. Because China is honestly surrounded by like a lot of key U.S. allies. We have Japan, we have Korea, South Korea, we have Taiwan, um, and we also have like India, which has never had a good relationship with China. So through the project and through giving in a sense, economic favors to um, these nations. Um, China is really building up like more real positive relationships with nations within the Build and Roll Initiative, but also other ones that they can form an alliance to in order to, um, you can say, like limit the U.S. influence on these regions. Yeah, I think um, when looking at China's international policy, I think it's important to like, more compared with the United States, um, more isolationist goals in the future or where they're go- heading right now. Because realistically right now, China is a rising hegemon and will eventually be able to, or may eventually be able to fight the U.S. And the Belt and Road Initiative is significant in this because it's growing dependence on them. Um, a big term that comes up a lot is debt trap diplomacy, which is when these countries cannot fall, stay on their loans. So they're, they ha- they're more dependent or they have to return to China, and China kind of has them more negotiating powers over them, and thus the U.S. will have less power. Yeah, I know you were saying to me earlier, like, uh, about the Sri Lankan port and everything, where that is owned by China now for, what was it, like, 99 years. Um, 
moving forward just because they weren't able to make those payments. Um, and you see that a lot of the time with those kind of BRI investments that China's making, where it does give them like a lot of kind of control, even not necessarily politically, but at least economically, in a lot of these very poor countries where outside investment like that and any kind of like multi-billion dollar infrastructure project is going to be a really big deal for like, if you control the poor, you control a lot of trade within the country, you have a lot of influence within the country and how it's governed. So I think that's definitely an important consideration when talking about um, Chinese hegemony versus American and kind of how they're going about that. Because America has all its military bases everywhere. And I know China's kind of started doing that in Djibouti and they're looking at doing that in other places, I believe, too. Um, yeah, it seems primarily as though they're expanding more in Africa with their military wise. But yeah, their first base came to be in Djibouti. That's the first one outside of their country, which, of course, is the country I mentioned is is heavily in debt to China. Um, apart from this, I think an interesting perspective to look at this from is also that maybe it is beneficial to the world as a whole and less beneficial to the U.S. as an individual state um, because it is projected that participating countries will have a 4.1% increase in trade as well as a cut cost of 1.1% in global trade all the way up to 2.2% possibly depending on how the initiative goes. And also I know China's taking a big initiative in making all of these good for the environment. Um, they're investing a lot in lithium ion battery production uh, and creating a lot of renewable energy sources as a part of the Belt and Road Initiative. So in the end, maybe it is a good thing for the world as a whole, but not as much for the United States because we'll be losing a lot more influence. Do we really want China to have more influence in the world though? Um... I'm definitely biased because my family came from Taiwan and I still have a big group of family in Taiwan. So at least for me, the answer is definitely no. Um, and like, do we, like, honestly, I would just much prefer to have America as having more influence compared to China, which is just an authoritarian state and is um, not the most friendly neighbor to a lot of the nations surrounding it. Yeah, I completely agree. As, a, as an American, I think the United States, especially as a democratic nation, should take the primary lead against this. But for to avoid China from expanding um, the dependency from other nations on them, we would need to counterbalance them. And the United States, as the single loan hegemon currently, Tiffany, what you were saying earlier about China being not the greatest neighbor, I think that definitely holds true. Um, I think also, though, to look at how America's handled Latin America and the countries around itself, um, that's definitely reflected there as well. I mean, like the Monroe Doctrine into the Kennedy Doctrine, the stuff even in recent years that we've been involved with, allegedly, in uh, Bolivia and Venezuela and these places, um, kind of combating the pink tide there is kind of concerning to me and as much as we might be domestic representative at home uh, domestically internationally we do kind of act a lot of times in a more imposing our will on other people way i mean we see that in iraq we see that in other countries in the middle east that we've been involved with that being said i think there are also just obvious issues with china being um, in a place of immense power in that way um, but i think as much as there is tension in like the global community and everything, I think there are certain benefits to having this kind of fight between two prospective hegemons. 
um, because that kind of creates a system where countries that are not aligned or countries in the what might be called the third world, my developing world, um, the global south more broadly, um, might be able to kind of negotiate their way into one system versus another. Um, though obviously there are also tensions and conflicts that can spark from having two competing powers trying to get the countries on the margin. It will be interesting to see how that develops in the next 10, 20, 30 years. I think what you're saying is absolutely true. I'm not going to defend America's action, which a lot of them are quite messed up in other nations. Um, I think one thing that um, is worth mentioning is that at least in the like last couple of years, um, America has has had a, like a softer approach and connection with a lot of the nation, a lot of our allies. For example, just this year, Pelosi first visited Taiwan and visited Kiev when um, Ukraine was being invaded by Russia. And like, I think it was like two weeks ago, um, she visited Armenia when it is again being attacked. I'm not a big fan of her, but at least like her presence there is... Um, like signifies peace for those areas, at least during the term while she is there. Yeah, it's certainly better to handle those things diplomatically um, than it would be to kind of do regime change operations, troops on the ground and those (laughs) kind of things. Um, I think it's also important to note that countries like that that are more in the global spotlight, that are kind of richer, more like um, semi-core nations almost, um, get sort of a different treatment often than... um, poorer countries like we've seen with uh, Juan Guaido and other leaders in Latin America that have a lot of ties to American foreign policy where we're kind of imposing this leadership beyond what might represent necessarily be representative of the people um, in places that don't align with us. And I think it's scary that that's the course we're taking in Latin America and other parts of the global south, especially right now when we're seeing a reemergence of the pink tide. We see Um, in Colombia with their new leadership in Mexico um, and likely in Brazil um, with the runoff election going forward. Like if we see Da Silva and all these other leaders kind of coalesce around um, different ideas when it comes to trade and these kind of things that are maybe in contrast to America, we might see a reemergence of those kind of regime change operations that we've seen in the last five, six years in Venezuela, Bolivia and other countries. Yeah, I think it's interesting to note the United States saw like an emergence of a populist leader and that's been reflected in across the world. There's a lot of rise. I know both, I believe both the Brazilian candidates are populists. Um, I think that may contribute to isolationism because it's very, oh, us first. One way to maybe look at the topic of like what the United States or China's role should be in this world is that uh, maybe we shouldn't be putting these responsibilities or um, these powers into the hands of singular nations, but instead we should rely on international alliances such as NATO, or maybe just international organizations like UN or IMF to um, influence the world um, in a better way. Yeah, I would definitely agree, at least with the broader sentiment there. I think NATO specifically is kind of an an extension of Western power, of U.S. power into the European continent and other places, so it's maybe not representative of the global community as a whole. But when we look at organizations more like the U.N., where still the United States has definitely an outsized um, role and outsized impact, as do countries like Germany, I do still think they're more representative of the global community and they at least allow a voice for 
um, poorer countries, countries in the global south, to at least speak up about their issues. So I definitely would like to see a more internationally focused, more UN potentially focused um, global system in the coming decades. I like the idea of like global force. I guess my main question would more be like, is there a solid enforcement mechanism that would contribute to change amongst those organizations? We were talking about human rights. I know human rights specifically don't have many enforcement mechanisms because um, it's more just like agreements that countries take but there's nothing to make sure that they align with those with what their promises are. And I think like NATO has more of a military enforcement mechanism, but the UN like agreements that they come to, how are they implemented and made sure that people abide by the agreements? Yeah, for sure. I definitely think that's a limiting force in the UN as we know it today. I mean, we have the blue helmets, we have those kind of things, but there's not really any way to really enforce those kind of international agreements and treaties when countries don't align with them. I mean, most UN nation member states don't even pay their dues in full, um, which I think really reflects on its organizational capacity. So that's something that would definitely have to greatly change before we could realistically um, imagine a model in which the UN is kind of controlling those forces globally. Yeah, and with that, I guess I'd like to re-bring up the, con- the conversation of China, because China is a more of a now thing. I believe the Belt and Road Initiative was first signed like 2013 and so it's been in place they've already invested like a trillions of dollars so that's more of a contemporary issue which will rise i guess if it's not counteracted soon for sure yeah i think it's a long-term growth initiative though too i mean you talked about it being set to complete by 2049 we're already seeing a lot of impacts of it um in the nine years it's or however long it's been active um, so I think, I mean, in addition to China's already growing stance, their, their economy is booming, um, all these kind of things that are contributing to China's power and have been since, like, the reopening um, by Ding. Um, I think it will be interesting to see how that develops. I would like to bring one last consideration um, for our listeners. A lot of people viewed isolationism as a thing of the past since right now we're all about globalization we're all about countries being both economically but also politically intertwined with each other and many people think of this as the solution for uh, military conflicts because well you know if all the nations are going to boycott you when you attack your rival nation then there's an incentive for you to keep your army to yourself But as we can see from the case of Russia, that doesn't always work. Or perhaps we can think of it as um, not working because Ukraine hasn't gotten, hasn't been accepted to NATO membership yet. And if they had already been a NATO member, then perhaps Russia would not have invaded them. And one ironic thing is that with the invasion of Ukraine, in part to prevent them from being a NATO member, Sweden, Finland, Bosnia, and Georgia have all declared their aspiration to NATO memberships, and it kind of brought the Western world more together in support of Ukraine against Russia. And I just think in closing, it's important to kind of think about what we think the trends for isolationism are going to be in the coming years as we see this potential to shift hegemony toward China. or just toward away from the United States, however that may look. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see how countries 
um, develop in their foreign policy in the coming years.